Father, this morning we thank you that you are perfect love. And we thank you that your love drives out all fear. So God, I pray for any fear that still resides in our hearts this morning, that through this time you continually drive that fear out of us. And you replace it with your truth and your love and your grace. God, we thank you for your deep love and care for us. And God, we want to hear you. We want to continually allow more and more of you to saturate our life and our being. And so God, I pray you would speak to us as we open your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We have, uh, well, last week anyways, we started a new series. Uh, this is the... The part of the church calendar uh, that is called Lent, it's the period leading up to Easter. And, uh, and as we lead up to Easter, we are going to, uh, we have been jumping into the upper room, and it's called the upper room discourse. It's uh, John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. We still see how far we get before, before Easter. And, uh, and, and this is just a powerful moment in the life of the story of Jesus, because this is the very last meal Jesus has with his disciples and his friends before he's crucified. And he spends some of that time teaching his disciples some very, very powerful things. And you can imagine if you only had uh, 24 hours to live, and if you had one last meal with your closest friends, that your words would, would be incredibly powerful, incredibly weighty. And that's what these words are. And so we are, if you will, joining the disciples in this upper room with, with Jesus and just trying to get a glimpse of what they experienced and, and just as the Holy Spirit spoke to them to allow the Holy Spirit to speak, to speak to us. And last week, we saw that this passage opened with Jesus and his disciples. Um, they, they arrive in the upper room, they begin to eat, but some, uh, uh, at some point during the meal, Jesus actually, he puts on the, the clothing of a slave. And he takes the position of a slave as he begins one by one to wash the feet of his disciples. And we talked a lot about just how incredible that actually is because uh, this was the job of the lowest of lowest slaves. Yet Jesus being the king of this universe, the one who holds all things together, he takes this position and he does what no one else was willing to do and he washes the feet of his disciples. And we took note that Judas was one of those disciples. Judas, whom had his heart ready to betray him, who already received the 30 pieces of silver and was set to go against Jesus to wreck what Jesus was doing. Judas was one of those people that Jesus came up to and began to wash his feet. And knowing Jesus, we know that Jesus would have washed his feet with love, looking into Judas' eyes, saying, I love you. I mean, let, let's try to work this out together. Let's, let's move forward with love in his eyes. He washes the feet of his disciples. And we focus in on what Jesus said at the end. He said, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. That Jesus leaves this example for us in, in how we live life in the kingdom. That we are people who are willing to do humble things. That we are people, because as we talked about, we know who we are. We know who we are in God. We have nothing to lose, which enables us to serve people humbly. That we don't have to prove anything. We don't worry about losing stuff because we know who we are in God. So it allows us to serve 
people, even our enemies, in humble ways. And we just looked at a couple passages um, like Romans 12 that says, Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. That's what Judas did, or uh, Jesus did. Judas is set to betray him. Jesus doesn't come with bitterness and revenge. I'm going to get you back. He lovingly washes his feet. We are to be people who overcome evil, not by doing evil back, or I'm going to get you back, or you know, bitterness and unforgiveness. We repay that with goodness and love. As Jesus taught in Luke 6, that we are to love our enemies and do good for them. And so Jesus leaves us this powerful example of, of how we operate in this life. And that is so dependent on knowing who you are as a child of God. When you know that your value and worth is set in stone by the authority of God, it allows you to love your enemies. It allows you to serve those who don't serve you back because you realize you have nothing to lose because you are uh, so loved by, by God. And so today we're going to continue this discourse in John 13. And today we get on, it, it is absolutely the most important verse in John 13, and it would be one of the most important verses in all of the New Testament is found in this text. One of the central themes, one of the central verses in the entire New Testament is found in today's text. But we've got to work through a few verses to get there. And so I'm going to quickly work through this first part here. So it continues from where he left off last week. Uh, speaking of Judas, Jesus says, I'm not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen. But this is to fulfill this passage of Scripture he who shared my bread has turned against me, obviously speaking of Judas. I'll tell you this beforehand so that when it happens, you will believe that I am the Messiah. I tell you the truth, anyone who welcomes my messenger is welcoming me, and anyone who welcomes me is welcoming the Father who sent me. Now Jesus was deeply troubled, and he exclaimed, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. And Jesus says that because... Uh, it's just another evidence that he is the Messiah. Uh, he, Jesus demonstrates his love by washing feet, but in this moment, he also demonstrates his power, that he knows what's coming. And uh, just another evidence that he is who he says he is. And this is what is so amazing about Jesus, is Jesus, he is all-powerful. He knows what's coming ahead in your life. He knows what's coming down the pipe, but he's not just powerful, he is love. Because we know that absolute power is, 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 a, is not always a good thing. But when absolute power is coupled with absolute love, I mean, Jesus becomes this amazing person that is in our life. And Jesus is deeply troubled over this reality that someone is going to betray him. And some of you know what it's like to be betrayed. To have someone who, you know, maybe committed to you at one time or said they would be there and then they betray you and they stab you in the back. You know how painful that is. And Jesus knows how painful that is as well. And the other thing so amazing about Jesus is not only is he all-powerful and all-loving, but he lived in this world and he was hurt by this world just as we are. He knows what it's like uh, to experience pain and to be betrayed and to have people ridicule him and persecute him and even kill him. And so we, we, we come to Jesus with our issues, knowing that he is powerful and he is loving, but also knowing that, that he really does understand what we're going through. And then he says this in this passage, that anyone who welcomes my messenger is welcoming me. 
And anyone who welcomes me is welcoming the Father who sent me. And uh, this is a reminder how closely Jesus actually connects with us as his followers. That he says the way people treat or welcome you is the way we are actually treating and welcoming Jesus. And this is not the only time he said this. It is found actually quite a few times in the New Testament. For instance, Matthew 25, Jesus says, Whatever you did for one of the least of these my brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And so when you serve someone else, it's like you, Jesus is saying you're serving me. And sometimes we wonder, how do I serve you, Jesus? Well, we start by serving one another. Because Jesus so identifies with his people to serve one of his kids is like serving him. Or Luke 10, whoever listens to you listens to me. Whoever rejects you rejects me. Or Acts chapter 9, where uh, this is Paul, or before he was Saul, when he's persecuting the church, Jesus appears to him, and, 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 and Paul falls to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And you can imagine Saul thinking, well, I'm not persecuting you, I'm persecuting Christians, not, not Jesus, but Jesus says, you're actually persecuting me. That Jesus so closely loves his kids and relates to his kids that the way people treat you is, Jesus says, that's how they're treating me. And this is, for one, a powerful reminder of how much Jesus loves you. He loves you so much, just like he's a good dad to say, you mess with my kid, you mess with me, you know, because I love my kid. This is what God says about you. I love you so much that the way someone treats you is how they're treating me. But in the context of love, this is a powerful reminder of how we must treat one another. That if we treat a brother and sister with judgment or anger or hatred, we're treating Jesus that way. And so one of the ways we, we love God is by loving each other. Because the, by the way we love each other is also how we're loving God. By the way we love our spouse is reflection in how we are loving God. Because Jesus so identifies with his people. He says, if you welcome you, you welcome Jesus. If you welcome your neighbor, you're welcoming, you're welcoming Jesus. And then he goes on and says, the disciples looked at each other. Wondering whom he could mean. I mean, they did not know who was going to betray Jesus. The disciple Jesus loved was sitting next to Jesus at the table. Simon Peter motioned to him to ask, who is he talking about? So that disciple leaned over to Jesus and asked, Lord, who is it? I mean, they have no idea who's going to betray him. In fact, to go to Matthew's gospel, all the disciples are actually asking, is it I, Lord? Uh, is, it, is it I? Now, we see the disciples kind of get it wrong sometimes, but here they actually get it right. Because they understood, as we should understand, that sometimes we blow it. And that all of us are capable of, of, of betrayal. We're all capable of, of betraying Jesus. Uh, in fact, the Bible tells us that if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. That if we ever get to a place where we're like, man, I can do this on my own. I don't need God. I have it all together. That's when you're about to fall off stage, if you will. Um, uh, we need God for strength. And all of us are capable of doing horrible things. And this is, this is why we need God in our life. We just need to keep ourselves filled with the Holy Spirit and to walk, walk in his presence. Now, you notice in this passage kind of this interesting phrase uh, that it says the disciple Jesus loved was sitting next to Jesus. And if you've read through the book of John, you realize that there's this disciple that's often called the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, which disciple was that? 
It was the author. <laughs> and the author of the book was like the disciple whom Jesus loved, and that's just me, the author, you know. Uh, that's how he describes himself. And, and we might, you know, wrongly think that maybe John is trying to be prideful or somehow that he's a better disciple or he was the favored one. Uh, but I think that John was just so amazed at God's love for him that he, that's, he just took that name on, on himself. That, man, Jesus loves me. I'm the disciple whom Jesus loves. I know he loves all these other guys, but, but he loves me. Uh, he loves me. And so throughout this book, John describes himself as the, the, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And it's a great name for us to take on for ourselves. Now, I'm Jesse, the disciple whom Jesus loves. And I'm Bernie, the disciple whom Jesus loves. I'm Ruth, the disciple whom Jesus loves. Because God's love for you is absolutely mind-blowing. He loves you no matter where you are at. And, uh, and, and you're the one whom Jesus loves. And we always need to be battling thoughts that Satan throws in her, in her head that Jesus doesn't really love you or he's kind of angry with you because you really messed up. And, and sometimes just naming yourself, I'm the one whom Jesus loves, keeps your thinking in line with God's thinking. And so he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. And so Jesus answers when they're like, uh, who, who's going to betray? Uh, they're, the disciples are asking, who's going to betray him? Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And as soon as Judas took the bread, now notice what it says, Satan entered him. Now, remember last week, it said that Satan tempted him at the beginning of John 13. And now Satan himself actually enters into Judas. I mean, evil spiritual beings can have a lot of power over us. I mean, the Bible talks about how Satan is like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And because Jesus came to bring love and life into this world, evil spirits are always trying to take love and life from people. And so if he sees you being saturated in love and life, he sees this situation being saturated in love and life, Satan is always wanting to kill it, so he's looking for people to tempt. And sometimes he's tempting us to, to do something that would pull love and life out of our marriage or out of a church community or out of, out of a workplace. And we need to resist the devil, the Bible says. And if we resist the devil in Jesus' name, the Bible says he flees from us. But just as we can open our hearts more and more to God and allow more and more of him to saturate our being, we can actually open ourselves more and more to evil spirits, to a place where eventually an evil spirit can actually enter in. And here we see an evil spirit actually enters into Judas, and his heart is now rock solid against betraying Jesus. And, of course, we see that play out later in the story. So Jesus told him, because Jesus knew what was going, knew what was going on, what you're about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. And that's not just a statement of, of darkness upon the land, but a statement uh, of just the, the, the scene with Judas, that there is darkness encroaching in on, on, on the scene throughout John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. Now, it's interesting here that Judas was in charge of the money. And uh, it's kind of a side note, but it's kind of an interesting discussion. Because back in the book of John, in verse chapter 12, it says he was a thief, this Judas. 
As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Uh, Judas was the treasurer for Jesus' ministry. And people would bring money to Jesus to help support their ministry, but also to help the poor and the needy. Judas was the treasurer, and he was stealing money from the money bag. And the question is, why in the world did Jesus let him be treasurer? I mean, why not put, pick Nathaniel? In fact, in John chapter 1, it talks how Nathaniel's kind of the cream of the crop. There's not one bad thing in him. Why not pick Nathaniel? Or maybe Matthew. He was a tax collector. He knows how to handle money. Or what about John? He was the one who Jesus loved. I mean, why pick Judas? I mean, I think as a church community, if we found out someone was, our treasure was stealing money, uh, we would probably hope as a community that they would no longer be doing that, <laughs> right? Because uh, we, we give, all of us here, me included, we, we give money into the pot, and, and we use it for ministry and helping people. And, and, but if someone was stealing that money, we'd like, we would have shut that down. Why did Jesus let this happen? And uh, the Bible doesn't tell us. And so there's a few options out there. I mean, some people think that maybe Jesus didn't know. Uh, Jesus lived as a human being. He didn't know everything in his human ministry. He didn't know the hour of his coming. And it may be that he didn't know that Ju Judas was stealing out of the money back. That's one option. Uh, other people think uh, that, um, that this actually wasn't um, actually all that different than how Jesus treats us. Because the reality is, just as Jesus gave Judas a responsibility to handle the money, Jesus gives us lots of responsibilities. He gives us responsibilities with the money he gives us. He gives us responsibilities with the kids he gives us or the spouse. Uh, he gives us spiritual gifts to use to build up the kingdom. Now the question is, are, oh, are we always responsible with all the things he gives us? Not always. But Jesus doesn't say, well, you're really irresponsible with that gift of encouragement. I'm going to take it away. No more. But he works with us. And some people think this is just a picture of his grace. It's a picture how, of actually how Jesus treats us. That even though we don't manage responsibilities perfectly, that, that, um, that Jesus had grace on us and grace on Judas. Other people think this was a parable, kind of a, a secret parable in the book of John, uh, about the reality that money is not to be our be-all and end-all. That we think, you know, someone's stealing the treasure, we got to handle that because we kind of keep money as an idol. But, for, but this, maybe some people think this is a hidden parable teaching that God is to be our number one. Now, sometimes things in our financial worlds aren't going to work out. Sometimes there's going to be issues in our financial world, like maybe Judas stealing out of the money bag, but that doesn't ruin us. That doesn't stop us because God is our number one, not money. So some people think it's bearable, but interesting discussion, but just a side note. All right. So as soon as Judas left the room, Jesus said, the time has come, come for the Son of Man to enter his glory, and God will be glorified because of him. And since God receives glory because of the Son, he will give his own glory to the Son, and he will do so at once. And so Jesus is moving into this period where he's going to receive glory, and he's going to be glorified, and, and, and that's talking about his crucifixion, death, and resurrection. And a lot of times when we think about the glory of God, we think about him high and lifted up in these lofty scenes of him in heaven on the throne, like there's the glory of God. But you know the glory of God is also shown in his suffering on the cross. The glory of God is shown in him uh, dying in terms of loving others in an other-centered, self-sacrificial way. And I tell you, if you want to make your life more glorious, sometimes it's just, again, about being like Jesus and loving others. The glory of God is not only shown in his magnificence, but it's also shown in his incredible ability to love 
even his enemies. And so his glory is shown in that. And then we get into this really important couple of verses here. And John says, Dear children, I will be with you only a little longer. And as I told the Jewish leaders, you will search for me, but you cannot come where I'm going. But later he's going to say, I'm going to prepare a place for you. We'll talk about that in John 14. But then there becomes this huge, important verse, which is uh, one of the supreme verses in the entire New Testament. It says this. So now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. I am giving you a new command that you're to love others as I have loved you. And one of the first questions that comes out of this is, is why is this actually a new command? Because if you read your Old Testament, this is it's kind of in the Old Testament as well. In fact, uh, earlier in Jesus' ministry, one of the teachers of the law says, up, you know, what is the greatest law in the Old Testament? There's 613 laws in the Old Testament, and, uh, and this teacher comes up, what's the greatest one? And one of the ones he mentions is to love your neighbor as yourself. So this idea of loving others is clearly seen in the Old Testament. In fact, in, in 1 John 3, it says, this is the message you have heard from the very beginning. We should love one another. So why did Jesus say, I give you a new command, love one another? What makes this command new? A couple thoughts. Uh, first of all, Jesus is implementing a new covenant. Just like the old covenant came with 613 laws, a new covenant needs, it needs a new law. Uh, we see in Luke chapter 22, this is the same upper room discourse, the same meal Jesus is having with his disciples where he washed the disciples' feet. It says this, After supper he took another cup of wine and said, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people. An agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice to you. So he's bringing this new covenant. And Hebrews 8 tells us when God speaks of a new covenant, it means he has made the first one obsolete. He's got a new car in town. The old car is being retired. He's got a new car. And a new car requires a new stereo, right? A new, a new, a new command uh, along with this. Now, now, what is the new covenant? You might ask, well, what is the new covenant? Well, I think Romans 5 would probably sum up what Jesus is talking about. This is the new covenant. That we have been made right in God's sight by faith. We have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand. And you're in Jesus, you are in this place of absolute undeserved privilege because it's not about how many good things you have done, it's, it's about Jesus. That when you have faith in Jesus, he ushers you into the very presence of the God of this universe and, the, and God the Father looks at you with eyes of peace. No matter where you are, the God of heaven looks at you with these eyes of peace saying, you are my son or my daughter and I'm well Please. I mean, it's, it's, we're un, it's undeserved privilege, but this is the, the new covenant that we have a right standing before the God of this universe. And at any time, no matter how hard our week has been or how much we've messed up, we can boldly enter the very throne room of God because we know God is always looking us at us with eyes of peace. This is the new covenant. The old covenant is obsolete. Though all those 613 commands 
are a part of the old covenant, so there's a new covenant in town, and so we need a new we need new commandments. And so Jesus says, I'm gonna give you one. Yeah, there's 613 in the old, but I'm gonna give you one. A new command for a new covenant, and that is to love one another as I have loved you. Secondly, it's new because it's a new example of loving others. Uh, the old command in the old covenant was love your neighbor as yourself. And if you remember, Jesus actually had an interaction with a teacher of the law who was trying to fidge his way out of this. Well, you know, who is actually my neighbor? Well, neighbor is actually one of those people who love me, so I only got to love those who love me. And uh, I got to love people the way I love myself. Well, actually, I don't really love myself much, so I don't actually need to love people. I mean, it's easy to fidge out of this one. Uh... But uh, John 13, but the new commandment says this, love each other just as I have loved you. You should love one another. And so this is loving each other just as, as Jesus loved. And so the example isn't, well, I don't love myself, so I don't have to love people. The example is Jesus. Jesus washing the feet of Judas, who's about to betray him. And ultimately Jesus dying on the cross for you and I in our messiness. In that, Jesus says, this is how you're to love. Uh, we can't squirm our way out of that one. <laughs> uh, we just can't. We are called to love deeply and to love those even who are against us. And uh, we, can even, we can't even no longer redefine love. Because, you know, sometimes I run into Christians, you try to redefine love. You know, I'm to love people. What? But what is love? It's tough love. So I love people with tough love. This is okay. We can't even redefine love. Because the Bible defines what love is. This is how we know what love is. It's not what we think it is. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Love is always other-centered, self-sacrificial. That's what love is. And we are to love in an other-centered, self-sacrificial way, just as Jesus did. Uh, so there's no wiggle room anymore. It, it, this is a new commandment with a new example, with a new for, for a new covenant. And so Jesus says, a new command, love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. And this becomes, uh, for the entire New Testament and the new covenant, a supreme command. This is the supreme command. I mean, Jesus mentions this uh, multiple times. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. In verse 27, this is my command, love each other. Galatians 5, 6, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. There's a new covenant. Jesus has one major command. And so the only thing that counts is are you doing this thing? Are you loving as I have loved you? The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. We want to make uh, the only thing that counts a lot of other things. <laughs> you know, you got to agree with me in all the little doctrinal points, and that, 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 that's what we want, right? The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Uh, we have this passage in uh, 1 Corinthians 13, the one that uh, I get to read. That wedding's a lot. But it reminds us of the supremacy of this command. It says, if I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. 
If I have the gift of prophecy, if I could understand, if I understood all of God's secret plans and possess all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains, but didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I had to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it, but if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. Three things will last forever, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. This is the, the supremacy of love. And often in Christianity, we want to make somehow uh, Christianity about other things that are more important than love. I mean, uh, what if you ran into someone who could just, like, they were the most amazing tongue speaker ever. I mean, they just spoke in tongues all the time. And we might be a while, I mean, that, that person really has a strong faith with God. But if they don't have love for one another, they're just a noisy gong. You, what if you ran into someone who had this incredible gift of prophecy and the gift of, uh, a, a, a gift of knowledge that they could actually understand? Notice it says, all of God's secret plans. Could you imagine if you ran into a Christian who just knew all of God's secret plans? You're like, I want a word for me today, and they gave it, and it was just perfect. And they just, you were just like mind-blowing, and you were just like, we would think that person, they must be so close with God. They must be the most impressive thing. But Paul says, if that person doesn't have love, they've completely missed the boat of Christianity. Now, what if you came across someone who could move mountains with their faith? Every single person they prayed for was healed like that. You had a financial difficulty, they could pray faith into that. Like that, money would start flowing into your mailbox and PayPal from nowhere. I mean, you just get money because, I mean, they have faith that they could move mountains. I think if you, if I knew a person like that, I was just like, man, they got something going on with Jesus. That's pretty amazing. I mean, that is like a preeminent Christian. They're just, they're incredible. But Paul says if that person doesn't have love, they've completely missed Christianity. There's something funky going on. Imagine if you saw someone who sold their house, their car, gave all their RSPs away, all of the, everything they own to like some poor African tribe uh, you know, in, in, in Africa. We was like, man, man, that person is such an example of giving. But if they don't have love, Paul would say they miss the story of Christianity. Uh, they're just a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. Or what if someone like, you know, someone says, you know, in an Islamic country, you know, you know, deny Jesus or I'm going to kill you. And this person says, oh, I'm not denying Jesus, and they're martyred for their faith. I mean, we would we say, well, that, that, that's strong faith, but if they don't do it out of love, they've missed it. This is why this is the supreme command of the New Testament to love one another as I have loved you. That no matter what we do, if we don't have love in our hearts, I don't care how impressive you are in your ministry or your Bible knowledge or your prophecy or whatever gifting you have. If you don't have a deep love and if people don't sense that love, there's something missing. Uh, this is the heart of the gospel, the heart of what Jesus came to bring us. In fact, this thing, in verse Peter 4, 8, says, Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers a multitude of sins. You can be messing up in a lot of things, but not this one. Because love actually covers a multitude of sins. You can, you can have a lot of messiness going on, but if God sees you just loving, 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 it's like, that covers a multitude of sins. Again, this is the, the supreme command in the New Testament. In fact, for John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, 
The son came to him and said, you know, how do I know if I have a relationship with God? One of his answers would be, how are you loving others? Over and over and over again in the book of 1 John, John relates a relationship with God with loving one another. I hear some of those verses, 1 John chapter 2. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light. 1 John 3, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. 1 John 4, let us love one another for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. 1 John 4, if we love one another, God lives in us. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. 1 John 4, 20, whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And, and so, again, you just, all of the scripture, the, the, the supremacy of this idea of loving one another as Jesus had loved us is to describe the church. And there are just amazing examples of this throughout history. I mean, there are some amazing examples in this own body of uh, how you are loving one another and doing amazing things. But one of my favorite examples is Dirk William from the 1500s. He was a Protestant at that time who... Um, he didn't believe in infant baptism. And uh, I think most of us know that in the Middle Ages, the, ch the church somehow really got off base. Because if you disagreed with some parts of the church, you, you're just like, we're not going to love you, we're going to kill you. I'm not sure what happened to Jesus saying, love your enemies and you know, bless those who persecute you. They were just like, oh, I'll just kill you. It's easier. Uh, that's what they did. So, uh, Dirk William, because he didn't agree with infant baptism, the Roman Catholic Church said, we're going to kill you. So they put him in prison, in this castle that was changed into a prison. And uh, he was in there for quite some time, but he eventually got enough clo clothing and, 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 and to make a, a, a rope that came out of his window and it happened that the moat around the castle was frozen. And so he goes, he climbs his way down because he hadn't been eaten too well in prison in those days. He was really light and could scurry across the ice, no problem, but he got seen. And some of the guards started chasing after him and one of them fell through the ice across this moat. And so Dirk had a choice. I'm totally free. I'm on the side of the ice. I'm gone. Or I could turn around and love this fellow human being who was about to die and drown. And, and, and he knew how to live into the kingdom. And so he turns around and he goes and helps this, this guy out of the ice and saves his life. But doing so, he was recaptured. And later he was actually burned at the stake. It doesn't always work out when we love our enemies. It doesn't, but this is the kind of life that Jesus is trying to push us into and fill us with the Holy Spirit so that, that we actually love and we bless and we don't repay evil with evil, we repay evil, evil with good. And the, the early church, by the way, really understood this. Uh, smart people who study Christianity understood that the reason that the early church grew so fast was because they knew how to love one another as Christ loved. And the growth of the early church is actually staggering. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not a Christian. The growth of the early church is just unmatched. It is just miraculous. It just seems like an impossible thing. And so there are some smart people like uh, Rodney Stark. He's sort of the Christian Iron Man. Tony Stark, you know Tony Stark, the Iron Man. Uh, anyways, he's like an uber smart sociologist. He's got like a PhD from Berkeley. But he was like... Why in the world did Christianity grow so fast? And by all this growth happened before it was legalized. It wasn't legalized until about 380. All this 
extreme fast growth happened before it was legalized when Christianity for the most part was still illegal. And he says there are three reasons for the growth of early Christianity. It wasn't mass conversion. It was number one, miracles. Lots and lots of miracles in the early church. Healings, uh, deliverances from evil spirits, just miraculous events in which people said like, there's no way to explain that other than God. And the amazing thing is God still does miracles today. In fact, the growth of Christianity in China is pretty staggering itself in the last number of years. And one of the major reasons for the growth of Christianity in China is actually miracles. Uh, Christians would go into these small Chinese villages, and one of the first things they would do is they would ask all the sick to come forward, and they would pray for them. And, and many, many of them would be completely healed, miraculous, and also the people are like, okay, we want to know what's going on, and they tell them about Jesus. And then they'd move on to the next village and call the sick. I mean, God does incredible miracles. And we've had some amazing miracles in, in this own body. And uh, because this is God. God is a miracle-working God. That was one reason. The second reason, and the third are similar, that was acts of love and service and the treatment of women and the marginalized. The early church got this right. Later on, after Christi Christianity was legalized, uh, it really began to go downhill. And, but I'm excited about the modern church because I think the modern church is really trying to pick this up again. The, the, the importance of actually loving one another. Uh, Deterlian, who's one of the early church fathers, said this. It is our care for the helpless, our practice of loving kindness, that brands us in the eyes of those who oppose us. Oh, look, they say, how they love one another. That's what the outsiders were saying. They were looking at Christians and saying, oh, how they love one another. And they weren't just loving people within the church, but they were loving people outside of the church. And one of the major uh, events, or two major events, that caused a lot of people to come to Christianity were the two major plagues, if you will, that hit the Roman Empire in 160 and 250 AD, which wiped out like a third of the population. Imagine like just one of, out of every three people like just died. Uh, but people in the Roman days, when, when someone got sick, they would often, even if it was a spouse or a loved one, they would put them out on the streets because they didn't know what to do. And they were scared of sickness, but the Christians would come out, around and pick up these sick people and care for them. I mean, a lot of them got sick themselves, but a lot of them converted to Christianity because that was the only place they felt love and care. And, care. and because Christians were, were caring for their own sick, that a lot of the Christians did make it through and didn't die, unlike some of the other population. In fact, uh, Rodney Stark, this uh, sociologist, says this. Christianity served as a, revi a revitalization movement that uh, arose in response to the misery, chaos, fear, and brutality of life in the urban Greco-Roman world. Christianity revitalized life in Greco-Roman cities by providing new norms and new kinds of social relationships able to cope with many urgent problems. The cities filled with homeless and impoverished Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachment. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. To cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. And to cities faced with epidemics, fires, and earthquakes, Christianity offered effective nursing services. For what they brought was not simply an urban movement, but a new culture capable of making life in Greco-Roman cities more tolerable. They actually loved people. And this was just one by one, people became Christians 
because not only did they see the miracles at times, but they just felt this incredible love that was birthed by the Holy Spirit at work in, in these people. In fact, in, uh, in, the, in the fourth century, Emperor Julian, who was a persecutor of Christians, he hated Christians, he actually said this to some of his pagan priests. He says, atheism has been specifically advanced, now you've got to understand, Christianity was actually called atheism in those days. He's talking about Christianity. Because in those days, they had like hundreds of gods, Greek gods. Christianity said there's one God. And so Christians were called atheists. He's talking, he's talking about Christians. Atheism has been specifically advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers. This is a Roman Empire looking at the church saying they are known for lavish love. Now the strange thing today, I think when most people on the outside look at the church, that's not how they describe the church. In fact, Barna's done studies that often when people you know, say, what do you think about the church, at least amongst young people, the first couple of words are judgmental, anti-homosexual, and hypocritical. Not, not, like these people are just, they just love people. It's, it's like these negative words because the church has lost this. But the church had it at, had it at one time. Uh, the church also treated women and the marginalized incredibly well. In fact, uh, if you go back to some of the early churches, some of the early churches were primarily filled with women. Because in the Roman Empire, women weren't treated all that well. And Christianity taught that there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Rodney Stark says there is a virtual consensus among historians of the early church and biblical scholars that women held positions of honor and authority within early Christianity. That in those days... Women weren't allowed to be leaders. They weren't allowed to have prominent positions. They weren't allowed to have property. But, but Christianity came in and said, actually, there is no male, female, slave, Jew, or Greek. We're all one in Jesus. That's why there are women leaders in the early church and, and, and churches that were filled with women because they were flocking to Christianity because all of a sudden they're like, I found a place where I actually feel value and worth. In fact, even in, in married life, as Abby mentioned yesterday in the marriage conference, that throughout history... And especially back then, it was all arranged marriages. And often by the time 11, you had an arranged marriage with some of your parents arranged. But in Christianity, at least in the early church, they actually allowed their women to choose their own spouse. And they could choose them out of love and were often married around the age of 18. So it was a radical different world for women. Uh, speaking about Women's Day, I guess the other day, uh, that uh, tons and tons of women flocked to Christianity. And because they're the ones who give birth, it could help spread, spread Christianity. Uh, the other big thing was that Christians actually cared for babies. You know, do you know that we actually find archaeological uh, ancient sewers that are packed with the bones of baby girls? Because in that culture, if you had a baby girl, um, the, the most Roman families would just kind of put them outside the doorway. If someone wanted to come along and take that baby girl, fine. If that baby girl died, they would throw them in the sewer. In fact, this was actually recommended by some of the ancient Roman uh, uh, teachers of the day. Rodney Stark said it was common to expose an unwanted infant, that is to put them outside the door, out of the door where it could be, in principle, be taken up by someone who wished to rear it, but where typically it fell victim to the elements or to animals or birds. Not only was the exposure of infants very common, it was justified by law and advocated by philosophers. Both Plato and Aristotle recommended infanticide as a legitimate state policy. Now the Christians came along knowing that every single person is made in the image of God. 
And so they would go along and collect these babies from doorsteps and take care of them. They themselves would not toss out their own baby girls, but keep them. And again, just because there were more female Christians in those days, they had more babies. And this again helped spread the advance of, of Christianity. Uh, in the end, Rodney Stark just basically says this. And this is this PhD Berkeley sociologist. He says, the early followers of Jesus were simply more compassionate than others around them. In real and tangible ways, they simply outloved others, and the world took notice. Now you notice what Jesus says next. And we'll finish here. I'm giving you a new command. Love each other just as I have loved you. You should love one, each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you're my disciples. That our love for one another, both inside this building and the people in our community, will prove to the world that Jesus is who he says he is. And, and yet the early church, they did it. They actually did that. Now the modern church, not doing so well. Uh, but you know, I think we ought to be pretty proud of this church. Our church does pretty well in this. I mean, our love is messy at times. Yeah. Uh, but we strive to love, and we strive to love those in and outside our building. And, uh, and I, my encouragement to just all of us is, let's just keep this as the preeminent thing. Amen. We love one another as he has loved us. Not make excuses, oh, who's my neighbor? Oh, they're, they're kind of mean to me. And you know, we, we love. We repay evil with good. That is who we are. And so let me just finish with the words of John the Evangelist. He's the guy who said, I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was the only disciple to live to an old age, by the way. All the others were, were martyred for their faith, but John supposedly lived to about 100 years of age. And he still attended church when he was super, super old. And one of the early church fathers, Jerome, talks about how John, this, this you know, 90s coming to church with all this wisdom of being a disciple of Jesus and all this knowledge. Here, here's his little story. The blessed John the Evangelist who remained in Ephesus to an advanced age and could scarcely be carried to the church uh, with the help of his disciples. At each assembly, he used to say no more than this, little children love one another. Eventually, the disciples and brethren who were present grew tired of always hearing the same thing. And he said, Master, why do you keep on saying this? He replied with a sentiment worthy of John, because it is a precept of the Lord and it is sufficient if this alone is done. Now, we love as he has loved us. So, Father, we just pray uh, a wash of your Holy Spirit over us in this area. God, I thank you for how you, you've just been working this in so many beautiful and different ways in this community. And God, we just pray for more. God, that you give us wisdom in how to love those that are difficult. And God, that you give us the heart of your son Jesus, that we might just love as you have loved us. And so God, we just pray a blessing over this in our area, in, in this area, in this church. And God, I just lift up anyone in this room who... And it's just maybe just struggling in this moment, like, how does this work with this person who's, who's frustrating in my life? God, in this quiet moment, I just pray you'd give them just a glimpse of wisdom. How, God, can we love that tough person?
Jesus' name, amen.